0: So, this morning we'll return to the meditative cultivation of mudita, of empathetic joy. For myself, I'd like to return to this great mudita, the great empathetic joy, which of course is then not simply an emotion, or not simply an empathetic joy, but once again is an aspiration, with the first phrase being this kind of very provocative It could even be a scientific question, and that is why couldn't we all never be parted from happiness and the causes of happiness? And immediately when we think about the referent of happiness, what do you mean by that? If we're thinking of hedonic well-being, then we have a a whole bunch of good reasons why we can't all never be separated from hedonic happiness and the causes of hedonic happiness. Uh, No comment needed, right? Aging, sickness, death, natural calamities, ups and downs of life, vicissitudes, karma, you name it. There's all kinds of reasons why we can't all just have a nice, hunky-dory, smooth life, unblemished, every day, just happy, happy, happy. It ain't going to happen. And it would kind of make us stupid, like in that movie, which was it? My grandson adored it. Wasn't it Wally? Was it Wally where those people on the ship, was it? It's, it like they're all fat and they can't even walk. But they have, and they're all just sipping, sipping drinks, and they, their bones have to, basically turned to jelly, and they're all just kind of happy dopes. It was Wally, yeah? Because my, my grandson, I think, has seen it six or ten times by now. But there it is. Okay, there's, may we never be parted from happiness and the causes of happiness. Erp. You know? So. <laughs> Not exactly an ideal we want to wish on everybody, maybe not even on our worst enemies. <laughs> so this one is absolutely demanding, you know, okay, bring some wisdom to this, otherwise getting really uh, really silly, cartoonish really quickly. And of course, in that Wally, they actually got Wally or somebody came to their rescue so they wouldn't be caught in that ridiculous jello mold. Genuine happiness. And as soon as we reflect upon the causes of genuine happiness, we see just one wonderful thing popping out after another. One of these be- being that it's absolutely non-competitive. So much of hedonic, not all of it, but most of it, of the pursuit of hedonic well-being is competitive. It means that I have more, somebody else has less. Even for intangibles. I've written a lot of books, so even on Amazon.com, you know, what's your rating on Amazon.com? Well, if my, bo- if my number is this, you know, three hundred thousand, two hundred twenty-five. I just bumped out the three hundred thousand, two hundred and twenty-four person or twenty-six person. You know, I just bumped them. You know, oh bummer, Alan got ahead of me. You know. Now they're only whatever, you know. So even something intangible like that, even that you can say, well, everybody can't be, you know, three hundred thousand. <laughs> you can try, you know. And so and for so many other things it's obvious. But when it comes to genuine happiness, the more one person has, experiences. In fact, it blesses those around. It actually encourages, inspires others that they may, <clears throat> something almost like a contact high, be inspired to draw into the, draw on, on, onto or from their own natural resources. So, this Buddha nature, these inner, this inner resources of our own minds, our own consciousness, is the greatest natural resource that is largely undis- undiscovered in the modern world. You know? And it's waiting, and every, every single person has this vast r- storehouse of riches waiting to be tapped into. But then, if we ar- arise this aspiration, or arouse this aspiration, may we never be parted from genuine happiness and the causes of genuine happiness. It's a wonderful aspiration. that a lot of people don't believe they have such resources, especially if they're suffering from low self-esteem or they're just single-pointedly focusing on trying to get by, trying to survive, trying to succeed and to flourish, to progress financially and so forth. So I know in my own experience, what winds up being the most important is actually encountering examples of people who have, are living it who are embodying, to a large extent, the realization of their own inner resources. You know? I think that's what moved me more, well, it's hard to say because the teachings I received were, were so wonderful. But when I first went to Dharmzala, the teachings were magnificent. But of course, the fact that it wasn't just one more professor, I had, lot, I had a lot of education already. I'd known a lot of professors before. I'd never met a professor like this one before. He wasn't really a professor. He was a Lama, but someone from whom I'm going to class. I'm attending a class with him. There's only about eight or ten of us in the class. For a whole year, sitting at his feet and receiving Dharma teachings every morning, six days a week. But seeing Paul, he's not only enormously erudite, we never asked him a question about Dharma that he couldn't give us a really satisfying answer. And I tended to be, like some of you here, I tended to be really just pounding away with questions. I was just insatiable, relentless. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if he, at one point, oh, oh, Alan's asking another question. Gee, don't you give me a break here, you know? He never did that. Too patient, too kind. But I do recall that, that just there was never a question about Dharma, that there was what not a really good, satisfying answer coming right in, you know. And so, but there it was. Not only that his erudite, I'm referring to and Daige, and implicitly so many of my other teachers, but just that love of Dharma that he embodied. And the compassion he embodied. The wisdom he embodied. His ethics was just like new fallen snow. That was just, you, you couldn't even imagine any flaw there. He really was perfect. I mean, I just never saw him doing anything that could be even interpreted it. If you had a wild imagination, how would you interpret this? He was such a superb monk. Monk, lama, teacher, spiritual friend. Really superb. You see somebody like that, Oh, that's really possible. So it's wonderful to be inspired by others, by their example, gives us hope. But then in this mudita, then when we arouse not only aspiration but the resolve, may I make it so, may I be the enabler, the, the person who catalyzes this, so that we never need to be separated from that which is actually ours. When we consider, oh, I'm happy because I have wealth. I'm happy because I have this wonderful family. I'm happy because look at my beautiful house. I'm happy because I've got money in the bank and so forth. That's very nice. I'm glad you're happy. And all of those things can be and will be taken away. (laughs) That's it. So I'm happy for you now. Sure, I'm happy for you And I don't rejoice just in empathetic, genuine happiness. But everything you just listed there, well, you're going to lose it. So then what will I rejoice in? Whereas a person is experiencing genuine happiness because they've tapped into compassion, into mindfulness, into shamatha, into wisdom, into inner virtues, and are experiencing tapping into the wellspring of their own genuine happiness. Exactly how are they supposed to be separated from that? That would be like having to separate you from your own consciousness. That's not possible. So this actually is possible, but then how could we envision being the enabler, the catalyzer, the person who helps others never be separated from their own natural resources, from the genuine happiness, the causes of them that lie within their own consciousness. And I think you're going to see where the shoe's going to drop. Be an example. Being an example. You know? I, I expressed yesterday gloom and doom. Seven billion people single-pointedly focused on hedonic pleasure and sucking the earth dry so there's no fish in the sea. And we've contaminated the Earth and we've earth, and we've heated the globe so it becomes, becomes untenable, and so forth. So there's a route for disaster. And then we consider that insofar as we really turn to the cultivation of genuine happiness, as soon as we have enough, enough. and enough in one situation is not enough in another situation. So we know that's not some fixed figure, like you know, 20,000 dollars a year, or 50,000 or 10,000. It's not fixed. It depends on context but where your context is whether you're living in melbourne or whether you're living in you know some tribe up in british columbia who knows what that you see this is sufficient this is sufficient food clothing shelter medication and then i would add in this in this world today education that's kind of like that's really crucial right so food clothing shelter medication when you need it and then education That pretty well covers it, doesn't it? I think so. Maybe there's something really important in addition. I'm open to that. But once that's taken care of for yourself, your children, your family, say, okay, it's enough, that's sufficient. Good, now we can roll up our sleeves and get on with the the big show, what it was all about, why we're really here, the very meaning of our existence. Good, all the mundane stuff is taken care of. Good. And then instead of just turning to entertainment, is a standard hedonic response. Good work is finished. Now it's showtime. Now it's fun. Now it's fun time. Ah, good. Hedonic. The, the mundane. The mundane is taken care of. Now for genuine happiness. And then, if insofar as our human population here started to shift the priorities, not for ever increasing gross domestic product, which seems to be just absolutely mesmerizing, all of the governments of the planet. How fast are you growing? How fast are you growing? As if this is going to be a good thing, that all the countries in the world, all of our economies just continue to produce more, which means, of course, consume more, which means deplete more resources. Why isn't this obvious to everybody? That this is really not such a great, that's not the way to measure any kind of success? just that we're producing more and consuming more. Now let's all consume more and more and more. Then we know we're really flourishing, until we die. So, oh, whoops. So a different vision, adequate, sufficient. And then the cultivation of that which is really meaningful. So, may I make it so? How can I possibly make it so? Have to realize it. Have to embody it. Have to be a light ourselves, each of us, ourselves. Whether we're Dharma teachers sitting on, let's call this a Dharma throne, shall we? I like sitting on a throne. Or whether we're working as on a train, you know? Maybe a, a train a train conductor. Maybe a plumber, a gardener. Maybe, you know, all kinds of things, wherever it is. Selling pencils in the Stanford bookstore. I think I might have told that story, I won't now. But, you know, very mundane job. But this woman who was doing it, just a light. Just a light of, whoa, so inspiring. And she really was selling just stationery and stuff like that in the Stanford bookstore. Quite remarkable, right? So it's not, oh, I have to be a Buddhist teacher, I have to be this, I have to be that. No, be anything. But then within that, bring that light so that you can inspire others. And may it be so. So let's practice.